Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. From Swindon, England, XTC were one of the defining post-punk new wave bands to emerge in the late 1970s. They were active into the early 2000s, led by songwriters Andy Partridge and Colin Moulding, and over the years also featuring work from drummer Terry Chambers, keyboardist Barry Andrews and guitarist Dave Gregory. The new book, Complicated Game, offers unique insights into the work of XTC's Andy Partridge, one of Britain's most original and influential songwriters. Developed from a series of interviews conducted over many months, the book explores in detail 30 of Partridge's songs, including such well-known singles as Senses Working Overtime and the controversial track Dear God from throughout XTC's career as well as an extensive interview dedicated solely to the art and craft of songwriting. It was truly a pleasure to catch up to XTC's Andy Partridge. The book Complicated Game is based on a series of interviews that he did with a man named Todd Bernhard. So I began the interview by asking Andy, who is Todd Bernhard and how did this book come about to begin with? Well, he was, um, he's a, a sort of amateur drummer, and he wrote for several musical magazines, and I met him years ago, and he became a friend, and um, about 10 years or so ago, he said to me, hey, look, you know, this, this new invention, internet thing, must make good. <laughs> so he said, how about we do some interviews, I'll phone you, and I'll record the conversations, and I'll transcribe them, and we'll put them up on the net, and we'll, you know, we'll work through uh, a bunch of songs, you know. So I don't know how many conversations we did in total, 90, something like that. And uh, they were up on MySpace for a while, and I'd, I'd sort of forgotten about them, to be truthful. Uh, and then a, a publishing company in England, Jawbone, who do a lot of music books, they said, would you mind if we compile say, a third of these together, um, you know, in, and, and make a book of it. And I, I said, no, that would be fine, yeah. So what we are seeing in the book is literally just about a third of the number of songs that you, you discussed with uh, Todd over the years? Yeah, exactly. Wow. I mean, to be truthful, we could have done every number on every album and all the other outtakes and blah, blah, you know, the whole the whole gamut. But... Um, He's got a life to live, and, you know, I was doing a few things. But uh, these are, these are what, sort of 30, like a random 30, from a few picked from each album. Um, and uh, it's just our conversations, our phone conversations, about any given side of any song. And him being a drummer, he usually leans towards the drumming side of it, but he's also very observant, and, and uh, you know, he's a real music nut. So... His questions were great because they were pulling stuff out of me that I'd forgotten or I'd um, I hadn't thought about. You know, oh wow, yeah, somebody noticed that or oh, I've never had to explain that before. So the, the questions were very, very insightful and, and tailored, you know, to any specific song. 
What, how were the choices made as to uh, what songs and what discussions about which songs would end up into the book? Who did the editing? Was it you or was it uh, Todd no, or both I, of you? No, I'm kind of, um, I'm just the willing stooge in all this. I'm sure <laughs> I'll talk. I mean, I love to talk. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, he, he, he conducted these interviews and it's his questions. So he'd obviously done the homework there on any given question on any song. Um, and then uh, I think he and Jawbone, you know, sat down and said, well, which ones should we put in a book? They've, I, I said, why don't you put them all in a book? Uh, and they said, oh, you can't. It'd be too thick. You know, it'd be like half a dozen telephone directories. And I said, well, look, why don't you print it on, um, like, Bible paper? You know that really skinny? Yeah, really thin, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like onion skin or whatever they call it, onion paper or something. Yeah. Can't you print it all on that? Oh, no, no, we can't do that. You know, these people that print Bibles, they won't print anything else on, you know. The religion, the religious have got some sort of hold over what paper we can use. Is that true? But but anyway, so they they said, look, why don't we do about 30 of them? And if it sells good, we'll do some more volumes. So, you know, rush, rush, rush and and buy a copy and then... um, They'll, they'll print more of them up, you know, print some more interviews up in a next a next volume and maybe even a next, you know. Oh, man, I'd love to, I'd love to see a volume devoted uh, alone to just albums like English Settlement and, and Skylarking, a couple of my personal favorites. And I, I had the pleasure of talking to you. You're not going to remember this, but when I was working at another radio station in Detroit, uh, right when Apple Venus Volume 1 came out in the late 90s, and you were just literally exploding with delight and pleasure that you were finding able to release and, and, you know, officially put out new music after this ridiculous embargo through most of the 90s through no yeah, fault yeah, of your was, own. Yeah, that was a, a crazy time, and I, and I guess they blinked first, but um, <laughs> something had to be done because we were in an, an iniquitous uh, deal, and it was Dave Gregory that suggested, well, why don't we just, uh, I'll do his voice as well, hang on, <clears throat> let me see. Oh, party! Why don't we just bloody well go on strike? So, um, yeah, I thought, yeah, that's a great idea. Why don't we? Why not? Any other industry had a, a crappy contract; they go on strike. So, you know, why? Why don't we? As you know, as as uh, pop musicians, for want of another word. So, um, I don't know if that's ever been done before, but it was all Dave's idea and. I don't know whether he was joking or not, but I th- I thought that's a fantastic idea. Let's do it. So we did. It was just a case of, no, we're not we're not writing any more songs. Actually, we were writing like crazy and in, in, you know behind the scenes. Right. We're not going to write any more songs, and we're not going to put out any more albums on Virgin Records and until you either better our deal or release us. You know. So it worked in the end. I think they just got embarrassed about us bad mouthing them and. You know, I'd, I'd call them up at, uh, at times where they weren't happy. I'd track down, like, the heads of the label and stuff and call them on holiday. I remember talking to one one chap uh, poolside somewhere in the Bahamas, you know. <laughs> and I, I'm saying, look, you've got to let us out. We've got to go. You know, I'm going to keep I'm going to keep pestering you until you give up, you know. But it worked. How were you able, ever able to keep your sense of humor and your, your sanity, Andy, during a, a time like that? And a, a, after doing radio now for some 
thirty plus years in Michigan. You're not certainly not the first horror story that I've I've uh, unfortunately heard about. It's it's the it's the greatest art form for me, and the people who are the musicians and the artists just get treated so horribly by so many of these companies. How did you survive it? I have no idea. I mean, I'm a pretty optimistic sort of character generally. Yeah. Uh, I moan a lot. Maybe that's where I get out all my, <laughs> what's the word, kvetching. That's where I get all my kvetching out is I, I moan and grumble a lot. And then, you know, uh, that's my safety valve because I can, I can be pretty positive after, after I've done all the moaning and grumbling. Um, <laughs> no, it was just, it, we had to go through it. We had to get free and and get away from this this terrible deal. I mean, we didn't get the catalog back or anything like that. The fact that we're releasing these surround sound uh mixes now is they're literally letting us um put out the records, but we don't own we still don't own the music or anything like that. You know, we d- we didn't got, get given it back. Mm-hmm. So they still have everything for perpetuity. Um, and I think they, in this case, are right now are probably uh, universal, I think, own everything. Take, take us into a couple of songs that are included in this new book, Complicated Game, Andy. I mean, forgive me, I know you're probably so done with wanting to talk about Dear God, but my goodness, if anybody in America knows a song from XDC, it's this notorious track, which is um, so beautiful and so moving and didn't get included on the original version of Skylarking, which is just such a strange story. It wasn't included because it was something as simple as the fact that the uh, the album was a bit too long. <sighs> and I went for a meeting with Virgin Records in London and the A&R man at the time. Um, he said, look, we got to lose something from this album. And uh, there's a song here called Dear God, and um, I don't know, this song might really upset some Americans. Why don't we take it off of the album? And um, I, I, I actually, to me, that undermined the one of the thoughts I had about writing that number, whereas I thought I failed in writing that song. I mean, it's such a massive subject. You know, you can you mm. could have done a box set easily about the subject of human belief. Sure. I thought, you know, for a three-and-a-half-minute song, I thought, you know, maybe I failed. Maybe I really haven't said what I really wanted to say about this subject. Because I was, I was wrestling with that subject at that point in my life. Um, but... Um, I thought, well, maybe I've failed. Maybe he's right. Maybe it'll annoy people, or maybe he can sense that I feel I've failed with this song. Okay, we'll take it off the album. So it was taken off the album, uh, and um, that made it a better running time for vinyl, certainly, and that was the prime concern then was vinyl. Sure, yeah. Um, And it was reduced to a B-side, and a couple of mischievous radio stations in the States uh, played the B-side, and of course, immediately they played that their switchboards and light up like a Christmas tree. Either please play that again. That is just speaks for me totally. Please play this again immediately. Or if you play that again, we're going to come down there and, and shoot your nipples off. Basically, <laughs> uh-huh. you know. So it had it had two 
polarized but strong reactions either i mean some some station in florida i believe was threatened with bombing um wow and uh yeah it it uh, it, it polarized people totally which is great because it, it sort of saved our career we we had a, a burgeoning career we got to like number 40 in the charts with the album black sea uh, we were on RSO at the time, Robert Stigwood's label. Sure, yeah. And that uh, we were touring a lot and um, trying to, you know, doing the same sort of thing as the police who we were buddies with, um, you know, trying to break the states, as it were. Um, and uh, and then things, I was just worked to death. Things things got too much for me, and I thought, no, i got to take a break from touring. I. I got, and, and of course, the record company then thought, "Oh no, they're not touring. That's it. They're they're going to fade into obscurity." But um, dear God, really helped us because um, you know it, because of that reaction, it, it was it was big reaction one way or the other. I'm so glad to see the discussion about uh, real by real in the book as well from the Drums and Wires album, which actually was the the first song that you played at this Michigan theater gig in Ann Arbor back in. 1980, and again, drums and wires are a real uh, discovery point for for many many of your fans in the U.S. Yeah, that that seemed to that seemed to do well for us. That album that was a good one to play for once you got past the tricky opening, the oh, yeah, which yeah. is like sort of tone scales uh, which don't fall very easily under a guitarist's fingers. Once you got past that tricky bit, it was like, phew, I can relax for the next three minutes now because I'm just playing chords. You know, Dave has to do the super swish kind of uh, uh, Skunk Baxter-esque solo in the middle, so <laughs> I don't have to worry about that. But yeah, you get past the tricky bit. It was a good, it was a good opener, you know. Sure, that, uh, that was a song that... Um, I think I was just a rather paranoid kind of individual at, at that age. I was kind of paranoid about the growing power of the state. I was reading about, uh, you know, the growing power of the state to, to eavesdrop on phone conversations and mail and stuff like that. And, of course, you know, that's a million times stronger now with the net. Um, sure. You know, and I'm I'm I, I'm not so paranoid now, but I certainly, uh, after reading a few accounts of people who'd been filmed in their houses through their computers, through the camera built into their computer or attached separately, you know, uh, people had been filmed and not always in <laughs> not always in very flattering conditions. Uh, I think a couple of the women were in the bath, uh, had their computers in the bathroom, you know, doing email or whatever, and. Somebody else was self-pleasuring in his in his house when, because you can you can take over people's computers and basically operate the camera and film them. I don't know if people know that, but man, that's scary. It is, yeah, yeah. You know, at one time you'd think, oh, the state's never going to eavesdrop on me. Well, why shouldn't they? They've got a recorder and a camera <laughs> in your home. Yeah, really, it's as simple and as you that. Invite them in. Yeah, yeah. Go back to the beginning, and uh, I was just looking at the video for This Is Pop and the, the fresh young face of uh, Andy Partridge and the rest of the guys well, from the debut hair. album. That's hair. <laughs> I remember that hair. Yeah. The, yeah. The, just... uh, now and nowadays, I have more hair on the whim of my ears than I have on my head. <laughs> 
it's uh, uh, so much uh, energy that's just bursting out of that video and 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 bursting out of that song. And uh, in the first couple of paragraphs, you talk about uh, your love for the New York Dolls and how you 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 wanted to be a member of the band. Who w- who would have thunk it? I love it. Yeah, well, I did. You know, they hit me at a time when I was um, I I'd done a lot of listening to. Personally, I'd done a lot of listening to uh, either very straight pop stuff in the late 60s, you know, the kind of Beatles, Monkeys, Rolling Stones kind of thing. Or uh, a friend of mine really got me into the the avant-garde jazz side of stuff. So I was, you know, buying records by Coltrane or uh, some of the European sort of exploratory players and things and just, just really out there stuff. And then Trout Mass Replica came along, Captain Beefheart and his magic band. And, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, so uh, my my tastes were getting out, more and more out there. And my friends were, they were getting more and more into prog rock. And I, I couldn't get it. I couldn't get prog rock. And I thought, no, I don't like the way this is all going. You know, I don't like the 40-minute drum solo. I don't <laughs> like a 50-minute bass solo with... Or I don't like the fact that everyone's on their own podium revolving slowly upside down as they're playing with fireworks. And, you know, <laughs> it was not why. And then along came the New York Dolls. And I thought, yeah, that's what I like. I like short songs with a load of energy that you can sing and yell along to. And um, they hit me just at the right time. I was, I just wanted to, to get away from the long, flaccid side of of prog I was seeing and hearing all around me. Um, and, and they just pressed all the, I guess, a sort of a nostalgia, even at that age, for for the short, compact, energy-filled song, you know, like the early Beatles stuff or whatever, or early Stone stuff, you know? And um, I was so taken with the dolls, I, I, I actually um, wrote a letter... I, ne- I never, I didn't have the balls to post it, but I wrote a letter saying that you know, um, should you ever need a new guitarist? Because I, I just knew that one of these guitarists is going to die. I just know it. <laughs> uh, and I thought, yes, yeah, should you ever need a new guitarist? I'm your man, you know. Because I'd try and dress like them and stuff at the time. You know, how I didn't get the crap beaten out of me when I went out for the night, I don't know. Let's jump from the beginning, from uh, white music, and this is pop to the the, the final uh, album and one of the final songs that's uh, discussed in Complicated Game, uh, which is Stupidly Happy from Apple Venus Volume Two. Interesting to read that uh, you say the song owes uh, uh, more than a little bit to Jumpin' Jack Flash. Well, yeah. I mean, some days you say, "Yeah, I'm going to find a song. I'm going to I'm going to go to my little studio or my shed." at the bottom of the garden, and I'm going to find a song. So you're obviously you're feeling kind of musical, you know? And then, he, okay, what, what, am I, what am I in the mood for? I know, I really love that sort of lollopy Charlie Watts kind of rhythm. So I'm pretty good at drum programming because I, I wanted to be a drummer. Part of me really wanted to be a drummer. And my dad was a drummer too. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I programmed this 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 beat that had this sort of Charlie Watts-like lollop. To, he's not the world's best drummer, but he's got a, a certain lollop that's kind of attractive, you know? I just think he's got a certain groove. When he hits that groove, it's really infectious. So I programmed a, a, a Charlie Watts-esque rhythm. Yeah, yeah. 
And I thought, well, I don't know what to do. I don't have any ideas for any songs. I'll just dick around with playing some old Stones things to see if I can work out some stuff. Like, you know, how did Miss Amanda Jones go on uh, whatever? What was that on? Between, uh, between the, the Buttons? buttons or yeah. Aftermath or something. I think Buttons. Mm-hmm. I, so I'm working that out, dicking around with that. And and then I blundered on this this shape, this... this um, Ooh, what was that? Ooh, that's good. So I, I, yeah, it's a bit tricky to play, but oh yeah, that's that's nice. Yeah, I like that. Ooh, that sounds good. And it's, that's like a, a sort of a Keith esque riff, you know. He's got his fuzz box clicked on his satisfaction fuzz box, um, and um, I just started playing around with this riff. I thought that's a lovely riff. Goes great with that drumming, and um, I recorded a bit, you know, like three or four minutes worth of just me playing this riff. I didn't know what to do with it, and I didn't have any other parts to any song or anything. It was just this infectious riff. And I felt really good about this riff. I, I just thought, well, this I, this is really happy-making. I don't know why. This is really good. And it was a hot day, and I had my shoes and socks off and probably my T-shirt off. I'm just in my pants, leaping around the shed, <laughs> you know, clapping and... and, uh, and talking in tongues because you've got to do that you know you've got to you've got to get into that gibberish thing you've got to talk in tongues if you want to find a song mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah and and this this recording is just going round and round and round and round just on an endless loop and i'm just gibbering and um this song stupidly happy falls out and i thought to myself well there are what do I do with this song? I, I don't have to do anything with it. Why don't I just have this riff goes all the way through the song and I fit different kind of layers of tune to it. And then the thing that really excites me is when those layers work over each other. You know, I mean, J.S. Bach was the master of that. Um, but but when, you, when you get one piece of tune will fit on another and they... They talk to each other over that repetition, and they make a third thing. Um, and I was just so excited by that, and I thought, you know, damn it, I don't have to change. I don't have to have other chords in it. I don't have to have, you know, I don't even have to have fancy bass notes in it. I'll just have one note. Because um, it's, it's kind of, it's one riff that sort of implies two chords, but not not either. So it, it kind of un, uncomfortably sits between two chords. So on the demo, I just played one bass note, you know, just all the way through. But uh, it was great. I couldn't stop leaping around the shed, and I thought, you know what? If this is making me happy, this is going to work with other people too. So I, a lot of a lot of songs for me come from from repetition. You know, it's the trance thing that. You 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 get into this trance with the with the repeated little loop of something that you've made, and loads of songs have come like that for me. Um, yeah. You know, stuff like um, River of Orchids was almost identical process to Stupidly Happy, or Travels in Nihilon on yeah. on Black Sea. That was that's just a repeated that that same riff ran around until you are bludgeoned into submission. <laughs> uh, but no, I love this this thing of of, uh, of repetition and, and layering melodies that speak to each other. Yeah. I, I can't get enough of that, man. That's a beautiful thing. Let me leave you with with one question. I know when 
most most of the time the, the answer to this when they ask uh, songwriters, you know, do you have a favorite song of, of yours that you've written, something that just that either you toiled on for months or days or one that came to you in 15 minutes that stands above everything else. And most of the answers are, go to, are something like, Martin, all of my songs are my children, and they all rank equally. And there's something about me that thinks, no, that's not true. There's got to be one, no, one song. One, everyone's catalog. Yeah, yeah, but sir. No, come on. you just got to be nice to them, <laughs> pat them on the head, buy them some candy floss, and, and wheel them out. Right. Um, well, what are you most happy with in your some gods yep. in amongst the catalogue, and there are going to be some complete pond life. There's not all songs are created equal. Um, what do you love, though, in your own catalogue, Andy? I, I tell you, I'm really proud of and really happy with everything about Easter Theatre. Oh, uh, and it, it wasn't an easy birth. It, it was a birth that that inadvertently took 10 years. Um, and I, that sounds terrible. I mean, I wasn't toiling away at one song for 10 years. What happened well, it was while we were making the Skylarking album, um, there was a leg of doing that album where we went over to San Francisco to work with Prairie Prince. Um, and he's, you know, he's drumming and we're, we're recording in the the Tube Zone studio, which was a part of an old factory in San Francisco. But we're, we're working there, and I had an idea for a song, or not an idea, not a whole song, just a really nice melody with, with a nice chord change over it. And I, I remember playing it to Dave Gregory. He said, what do you, Dave, what do you think to this? And I, I just played in the, you know, the, what became the chorus of Easter Theatre, but I didn't know it was going to become that. I played it to him, and he said, yeah, sounds nice, Patsy. What are you going to do with it? And I said, well, I don't know. I just can't get it out of my head. Uh, and I just tucked it away in the back of my brain. And, you know, 10 years later, I'm, I'm um, working on this song, which came from finding these chords that sounded like dark clusters of earth being broken and something coming up through the ground and I got to a point in in this this chord change and I thought oh my god I just don't know what to do with it right now and then you know from 10 years previous screaming like a emergency vehicle with all lights blazing from the back of my brain came this chord change and this melody that I didn't know what to do with and it fitted absolutely perfectly into you know this this new song Easter Theater I was working on, mm. and um, I mean that's the most extreme case of never throw anything away. Yeah, uh, it, it just lived in the back of my head for ten years, and I'd forgotten all about it. But it came screaming to the front, and I thought, oh, that's it. That piece from ten years ago fits perfectly, and it just made the whole song really work. Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers and our interview with Andy Partridge about the book Complicated Game Inside the Songs of XTC by Andy Partridge and Todd Bernhardt. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library.